This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing, whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status. Our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this interview. Uh, I'm loving this CEO series that we're doing. Yeah. We, uh, we are speaking to some great names, and uh, this might be top of the list. This is a very exciting episode. We are very, uh, I guess, honored to welcome Brian Hartzer to the studio. Brian, yes, welcome. Glad to be here. Brian is an Australian business executive who was the managing director and CEO of Westpac from 2014 to 2020. He has recently released a book, The Leadership Star, A Practical Guide to Building Engagement. So we'll touch on that as well as uh, dig into your time at Westpac and how you're thinking about business, leadership, the value of banks, plenty to go through, the Great, future of it. banking. So let's let's rock and roll. So Brian, we do like to start these uh, interviews by having the CEOs explain their, their companies in their own words. So if you, you know, you've, you've obviously left Westpac now, but if you think back to your time at Westpac, uh, when you were CEO there, how would you have, uh, I guess, described the bank you were leading? Well, Westpac is Australia's oldest company and a real institution in, in the economy. It was founded as the Bank of New South Wales in 1817. Uh, I have a history degree, so I get pretty, <laughs> pretty geeky about this stuff. But um, the interesting thing about it is that it was founded by Governor Macquarie specifically to help develop a private economy in Australia. Um, so before that, Australia was basically the world's one of the earliest state-owned enterprises, <laughs> if you think about it that way. And Governor Macquarie thought there was a lot more potential, and he thought, well, we need to have a currency. And if and so, how do we get a currency? And the answer was, you need a bank. And so, Bank of New South Wales is set up to give a bit of independence to the economy here. And so, all through effectively the history of Australia's economy is is. Westpac's history. And so the way I thought about it was, we are one of the pillar institutions of the economy, and our job is to fundamentally support consumers, support the development of businesses, 
make the Australian economy thrive. And if we do that well, then, or if we help do that well, then the company will do well. Yeah, wow. So you've had a career that spanned management consulting in the US um, and banking in the UK and Australia. Um, what have you learned about the differences between these markets? Are there any, or what are some of the similarities? And I guess the second part is, are US and UK banks as housing focused yeah. as, yeah. as, Austra- as the Australian counterparts? Yeah, it's interesting. So there's certain aspects of banking that are quite common, which is why you tend to see banking executives can move around the world, because there's a lot of things that are pretty common. But there also are some fairly profound differences. So in the US, the banking market got a lot more fragmented over the last probably 30 years where you had specialist players get into areas like mortgages, credit cards, and the like. Those markets, the US and the UK are very, very large and that creates opportunity for niche businesses to pick off bits of of opportunity and and grow into pretty large companies on their own. Australia is a bit smaller. So the smaller it is in a way, the, the less opportunity there is for niche players. I would say the Australian, econ- Australian banking system is probably a lot more like the UK. It, it, it derived from the UK, and so there are certain differences in the way products are structured and the like, which is why I'm probably a bit of a rarity in that um, not that many Americans have actually managed to make the transition yeah. to the Australian banking system because it, it does tend to work a bit differently. Whereas when I went and spent a couple of years in the UK, I found it very familiar Yeah, uh, yeah coming okay. from Australia. It, yeah. it kind of made sense to me. Um, on the housing thing, um, people are, are obsessed with housing kind of everywhere, but um, the housing funding systems, particularly, I would say Australia is at one end of that extreme. US is probably at the other end of the extreme where in the US you have lots of specialty providers and people don't necessarily think of going to their bank to get a mortgage. Mm-hmm. They tend to go to a a specialty provider. Um, In the UK, it's probably about halfway in between. So there's more specialty providers, but you still have the sense like you do in in Australia that people have one institution that they consider their bank. And and when they need something, they tend to go first to their bank. And if they don't get a good answer, then they go somewhere else. Mm. In the US, you kind of start off shopping around for pretty much everything. You get credit cards over here, you get mortgages over here, you got your savings account over there. It's it's a lot more fragmented. Yeah. So, uh, Brian, we're all in one way or another shareholders of banks, either through our superannuation, through owning index funds, or owning the banks themselves. Um, for banking shareholders, uh, how how would you think about, I guess, the value of of banks? Yeah, well, it's a really important question. I mean, ultimately, if you're running one of these companies, you're running a big public company. You you got to think about that. So I tend to have always thought about it as a long-term thing. I was a management consultant in banking, and we used to do a lot of our work was around how do you value banks, how do you generate value. What I came to believe is there's at one level there's a, a fairly simple formula for valuing a bank, which is that the market to book ratio of the bank is equal to the return on equity minus the growth rate divided by the required return minus the growth rate. I'm assuming people are kind of into this stuff in, in your listenership. Um, and so there's this ratio. Basically, what that says is the higher the return is relative to the risk, the higher the premium you get in your market-to-book ratio. And that tends to work for banks kind of everywhere. Now, when you peel that apart, what that is really saying in English is that, that the value of the bank, um, when you break it down, the dividends are a relatively small percentage of the value that people attribute to the shares of a bank. So I used to, when I was talking to our staff, I'd say, look, if you buy a share of Westpac stock, the dividends that you earn on that 
over the next three years in total might add up to about 15, 16, 18% of what you're paying for the stock. So what that really says is that 80, 85% of the value is in the future. Now, what drives that value in the future? Well, you go back to the formula that I talked about. It's essentially about, can you drive up the return on equity relative to the risk that you take? And can you grow the book value of the company? Okay, so that's still a bit mathematical. If you turn that into plain English, what you're really saying is, why would you have, to get a higher return, people need to be willing to pay you more than the commodity rate for something. So why would they do that? Well, they would do that because the service is good, they value the brand and the like, right? Um, And why would they stay with you longer? The growth rate is going to be new people joining you and people staying with you longer. Why would they do that? Because they value the service that you're giving them. You're finding ways to add value to them over time. What I used to say is, is, so therefore, if most of the value is in the future, and most of the future value is driven by the quality of the service that you're providing, there is no conflict between doing what's right for customers and doing what's right for shareholders. And, and to me, that was a, a really important thing. I had to, just the way my brain works, I had to get that working in my brain mathematically to kind of prove to myself that actually doing the right thing was actually doing the right thing. And I think a lot of people perceive, and, the, and now, there are a lot of people who call themselves investors, who in my mind are traders. Yeah. And 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 I make that and I, I took the view that I'm running the company for investors, not for traders. Yeah. And now the traders and, and you can make money being a trader. You can. There's lots of analysis where in, in the Australian banking market, you can trade in and out of bank stocks because everyone holds some bank stocks. But you can, you know, this the next six months, this one's doing better than that one. And people trade in and out. But I've always took the view that I can't control that. What I can control is building the long-term franchise value of the company, and that's going to be driven by the quality of the brand, the quality of the service, and your efficiency, your ability to turn revenue into profit by managing your costs well. That's it. So I don't know if that's helpful, but but in my mind, it's it's that the big insight for me, which I, I, I always try to reinforce to people, is that this notion, when you're running a public company, that you have a choice between yeah. doing what's right for customers yeah. and doing what's right for shareholders, I think that's wrong. Yeah. I, I, I actually think it's mathematically wrong. Yeah, love that, love that. And love the fact that you were thinking about long-term investors rather than short-term yeah. fluctuations. I guess the follow-up to that is, how often as CEO did you look at the share price? Um, not very often. Yeah, that's um, great. And, and um, I just didn't. I mean, I, you know, I kind of would keep an eye on it yeah. out of, really out of curiosity. Um, and it, it was a bit of a game, but it wasn't in any way what I was obsessed with. Mm. My view was we would look at, are we growing the tangible book value of the company? Um, and are we managing those inputs around the return on equity? Mm. Um, are we growing the customer base? How's our retention going? Mm. Those are the things that, to me, margin management, cost management. But those are the things I was interested in. Yeah. Um, yeah. My view was if we do that, the stock price will look after itself. Yeah. And, and, and also I experienced... Um, you know, you hear all these stories about people complaining about the analysts and short-termism and all that kind of stuff. And and there's a spread. I mean, there are some fantastic investors, institutional investors who genuinely are interested mm-hmm. in your long-term story. And then there's ones who are at the who are just purely mathematical and what's your margin this month versus last yeah, month yeah. And, and and so on. Um, but uh, it is really interesting how um, you can get kind of torn into obsessing about it. But I, I guess uh, I did see one thing that's maybe worth mentioning is I saw where a storyline would get out in the market 
and the professional investors would go bananas and your share price would drop and you'd think you seriously telling me that the company's worth 15 billion dollars yeah, less than it yeah. was yesterday yeah, yeah. I mean, that is just preposterous <laughs> yeah. you know it was some of it was just absolutely ridiculous and it um in a way it was depressing because i was a believer in the using the doing the math right and the long-term fundamentals of investing it used to frustrate me when i would see these ridiculous swings but on the other hand, I guess for in a sense for your listeners, the positive is there is room for alpha. Yeah, mm. exactly. <laughs> because yeah, yeah. actually, the market does really stupid things yeah. from time to time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, we we had one experience. Um, one of the things that really hurt Westpac during the time that I was CEO was a, a couple of analysts, and actually, it was really one analyst who was well regarded, just suddenly got this bee in his bonnet that the Westpac property portfolio was a bubble and it was all in trouble and it was going to be the big short. And he was going around internationally telling investors that Westpac was the next big short. Wow. And which was just ridiculous. And it was all based on this kind of um, some half-baked audit report that got leaked that was it was half baked yeah. and it was, and it was kind of missing the point, but every, it, it was a story. So everyone just went bananas on this and, and it, it dragged Westpac stock because we were seen to be overexposed to property investors. Mm. Yeah. And so everyone, Oh my God, property investors, it's all, it's a bubble. The property market's going to burst. And we lost billions and billions of dollars of market value, which came out of the pockets of our shareholders, by the yeah. way, which really did frustrate me. Um, and it was all nonsense. When something like that happens, do you internally take a, an offensive approach and say, all right, PR team, let's get back out there and, and try and right the wrong? Or do you just say, that's how it is. Let's just uh, let our business do the talking. You certainly would try to correct facts where you could and you would you would make your case. But equally, you never want to oversell it. I mean, philosophically, we always want to undersell because yeah. we'd much rather you get rewarded when you surprise on the upside yeah. and you get crushed when you miss by a tenth of a penny. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's crazy. So, so the philosophy is always under promise and over deliver. Yeah. Um, but when there's something that you think is just fundamentally wrong, you'll try and you'll try and correct it. But in some cases, like the one I'm referring to, the damage was done, you know, cause you're, how do you, how do you disprove a negative? Mm. You know, how, how do you prove, no, the property market's not going to blow up, you know, like, you can't prove that. Yeah, you can yeah. be. You can give all the arguments to them, but you know, once the doubt is planted in their head, there's, there's not a lot you can do about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, it's a tough one, and it's definitely a strategy that more short sellers are using these days. That uh, release the report, let the market react to it, and then you know whatever the facts fall, however the facts fall. They, they've had that initial impact from that report that they release. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think there have been examples of that. So, um, Brian, you guided Westpac through the Royal Commission into misconduct in the banking, superannuation and financial services industry. Can you take us into the room at that time? I imagine it was a very stressful time, uh, a lot of media coverage. How were you navigating it? Yeah, well, it was an extraordinary exercise. Um, I'll just say a couple things about that. So one was we had over 100 people working on that. Because the the way that it actually works is the regulator or the Royal Commission hits you with these document requests and gives you no time mm. to, you know, please give us a copy of every file of every customer for the last 18 years who've had this wow. product. You know, how do you even do that? So we had a massive team, literally over 100 people, almost all of whom were lawyers, 
finding documents, vetting documents, preparing things, responding to these, and the requests were just coming in nonstop because a bank is a big conglomerate of multiple businesses. And so, and we were getting all these requests across all these different businesses. Mm -hmm. So, so just the logistics of it were in, intense. And then for our people who had to testify in the Royal Commission, there was then this immense preparation that had to go in because they could be asked anything. So they had to go into this incredible boot camp of learning, looking at, at cases, understanding the law, the regulations around things to a level that maybe they hadn't needed to know before, just so they wouldn't be caught you know, not being able to answer a question because the whole thing's televised. And so and you have no idea what you're going to be asked. And you've got these guys whose professional job is to tear you apart, yeah. uh, <laughs> to grill you. Right. Um, so and then and then I was one of those. And um, and what I would say about that for me was I, I genuinely have not worked harder since university than the preparation I did for my Royal Commission thing. Um, they, I remember I came into my office one day and they brought in my briefing books. And um, the briefing books uh, were arrayed on a table, and I put them on the floor and made a pile, and the pile was that high. Wow. And it was about four and a half, five feet wow. of reading material that I had to go through. And I spent probably, uh, well, for six weeks, I probably spent the better part of two or three days a week for six weeks preparing for it. Jeez. Um, it was seriously intense. And uh, um, I mean, it was in, in one way, so that's the personal aspect of it. it was, and then you're going in there and it's the best way I can describe it is it's test cricket where um, you're going in and they are bowling for you, you know, and, and there, there's no fours, there's no sixes. All you, all you need to do is not get stumped. Yeah. Basically. <laughs> um, and there, and there's a lot of most every so often there's a bouncer at your head. Yeah. So it's a, it, and you're on live TV. Yeah. So it's a pretty interesting experience um, personally, but stepping back from that, I think for the industry, it was really great experience because we had to learn our business a lot better and we identified a number of things that really did need to be fixed. And in our, the, the number one thing being we weren't paying enough attention to the impact of customers in the tail of the distribution. So by that, I mean, for most customers, I mean, I used to say to people when they would complain about bank service, I'd say, well, what percent of customers complaining would you think is a good answer? Uh, is a reasonable result. And most people say, oh, less than 5%. And I'd say, well, what about 1%? And they'd say, yeah. And I'd say, what about half of 1%? And they'd say, yeah. And I'd say, good, because that's the number. Mm -hmm. You know, that the number of people who were actually complaining was very, very, very small. But in that number, there was a further subset of people who had been stuck in the system for a long time and had genuinely terrible mm -hmm. results. And we didn't, at a high enough level, know about that. Yeah. And we should have. So what we had to do is go back and change our processes so that when someone has fallen through the cracks or gotten stuck in the system or had a particularly egregious outcome, we need to surface that so we can fix it. Yeah. Because as soon as we found out about the, those ones, we were horrified and we went, oh gosh, well, let's fix that. And so that was a genuine miss by the industry, not paying enough attention to the vulnerable customers particularly. Um, so I think in that sense, it was, it was a positive. Mm -hmm. I know you're not at Westpac now, but if you think about the industry generally post-Royal Commission, do you think a lot of those changes have been made? I do. I do. Uh, banking, big banks are very complex um, and have old systems, old processes. The regulatory requirements are unbelievably complex and, and difficult to make sure you comply with day in and day out. At a high level, they sound easy, but in practice, with the number of people and businesses you've got, it, it gets hard. But um, I can certainly say, I mean, I know all the, the CEOs. I know what we went through. Um, it was very genuine 
in a, and, 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 and in a way, some of the frustration was a number of us, myself included, had actually come into our jobs knowing that the industry needed to change, knowing that we wanted to improve things. And I, I f in some ways, feel like for me, I was kind of like the surfer who started paddling, but still the wave was moving too fast yeah. and I couldn't get in front of it. Um, you know, so it wasn't like we were sitting there in denial that we needed to fix things. We were actually trying to fix things. We just, we had a huge legacy and we didn't get there fast enough. Mm. Mm. So after the Royal Commission, Westpac then got swept up in the Austrac money laundering case where the Aussie regulator cited 23 million breaches of anti-money laundering laws. Since then, banks like Commonwealth and financial institutions like State Street have also been caught up in the Austrac cases. What did you learn from this experience and potentially what advice would you have for other banking and finance executives? Yeah, well, uh, anybody who doesn't think that AML regulations are serious and and complex is is missing the point yeah. um anyone in financial services this stuff it's it's a whole nother level of of complexity and expectation and and rightly so um in terms of what i learned from that experience um, the particular issue at westpac started 12 years ago from a technical error and we didn't pick it up fast enough right. was essentially what happened and um what i've learned about that i think which is relevant in aml but probably relevant more broadly is you have to pay really close attention to outcomes around compliance, not just process. So one of the things that happens in banking is there's so much regulation, and often it, when it trickles down to the person who has to implement it, they're being asked to do a million things. And so they, they just fall into this mode of just trying to keep up with it all. And so it, the danger is you end up focusing on process rather than stepping back from it and going, okay, what's the outcome that would tell me if this process is working effectively or not? Yeah. And if it's not, who's looking at that and who's intervening to go, wait, time out, this isn't working. Regard, I know everyone's working really hard and I know you're trying to keep up with it all and I know, but best efforts isn't enough. You've got to have a layer of that. The other piece of it was sometimes the regulations require lots of different parts of an organization to work together and if you haven't been crystal clear as to who's doing what, things can fall between the cracks. Mm. And, and so those would be probably the two things that, uh, yes, the AML aspect is particularly complex and the, the penalties are severe if you get it wrong. But I think more broadly for anything, anyone who's in an industry that has a compliance aspect, you need to make sure you're not just going, yeah, we've got a procedure process, for that. Yeah. It's like, great, you got a procedure. What's the measure of success? Who's looking at it? what interventions happen when, when it's, it's not happening. Yeah. So if there's some file that, if the standard was that it needed to be dealt with in six months, and you've got a bunch of files that have been sitting around for, for 18 months, well, who's doing something about that? Mm. Who's noticing that? Mm. Um, those are the kind of things that can come and bite you. Yeah. yeah. Nice. So Brian, we want to talk about the, I guess, the future of banking. You know, we're seeing a period of unprecedented disruption or like new entrants, buy now, pay later, all of that. Before we do, uh, we do need to keep the lights on. So we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
it. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So Brian, as I said, uh, we want to, I guess, pick your brains on the future of banking. Probably no one better to talk to about a bunch of this stuff. And we're seeing the traditional banking model face, uh, I guess, new competitors or potential disruptors from all sides. Credit products, um, you know, in the with the buy now pay later players, savings products from the neo banks, small lending from peer to peer lenders. Uh, let's start general, and then we can get a bit specific. Uh, what do you think the future of the big four banks is? Well, before I get to that, let me talk about a couple of the macro trends that I think are driving the answer to that question, which is embedded in what you said. So, uh, for me, there's several big things going on. One is obviously the shift to digital. Um, in terms of what's possible with technology and how consumers want to engage with their world through technology. So there's an expectation that everything's going to be as easy as Uber. Mm. Um, and, and so all industries, banking no different, need to, to respond to that. The second thing that's going on um, is banking has traditionally had lots of cross-subsidies in it. Um, not necessarily... Um, for bad reasons, but just because um, you might give someone a check account with great transactions and you're effectively losing money at that, but you've got their mortgage, so net-net it's kind of okay. What technology allows new players to do is unbundle those cross-subsidies. And so in my mind, the businesses that have been successful, the new entrants, are the ones who've gone after a cross-subsidy where there's essentially an excess margin if you can find a way to just go after that piece. And that's why, in my mind, some of the startups who say are focused on the mortgage business, um, and, and in a sense, there's nothing new in that. Aussie Home Loans, going back 20, 30 years ago, was, was in a sense doing the same thing, going after a, a, an excess margin versus the neobanks who thought, right, we're going to start up and we're going to just do transaction accounts and savings accounts. Well, guess what? Those are generally loss-leading products. So <laughs> if you just do that, yeah. you know, in my mind, it's no surprise at all where some of the so-called neobanks yeah. have ended up. So I th- so this trend about going after cross-subsidies, I think, is is a big one. The, the third one that's been relevant for banks is location. So in the old days, you went to a bank to do something you went to get cash, you went to apply for a loan. Nowadays, you can do that financial transaction when you're doing the thing that you actually want to do. So um, after pay, these sort of things, this is finance at the edge, finance um, in the moment of what it, the other thing, because finance is always an enabler of something else. So now you can embed those activities in the something else. So that, to me, those are the three things in my mind that are fundamentally driving a lot of this. Now, so to your question about the big banks, there's no reason for the most part that the big banks can't still be successful in that world, provided they adapt their business to that. So are they shifting to digital engagement? Are they finding ways to be where the customer is at the same time? Are they adjusting the economics of their business 
to unwind those cross-subsidies. If they do that well, banks actually have a lot going for them. They have customer base already. They have brands. They have data. They have the ability to invest in technology. So there's no, no fundamental reason why they can't do it. But if they don't adjust, then they're in a lot of trouble. Yeah. So while you were leading Westpac, uh, you, you embraced this disruption and introduced uh, banking as a service. Um, to partner with startups seeking to embed financial services into the applications. Many of our audience would have heard of software as a service, but are you able to explain what banking as a service is? Yeah, well, the general idea was that there are a number of businesses out there, uh, fintech businesses and others, who have a customer, a digital customer experience and are looking to leverage their brand, leverage their customer base, uh, support what else they're doing by offering payment services or looking for essentially an old-fashioned cross-sell of, well, I've got you as a customer, why don't I offer you something else? And my view was that we can't fight that trend. That's going to keep happening. But on the other side, there have been lots of examples over time of big brands trying to get into financial services and finding that it was actually really hard and, and they weren't successful because banking actually is a lot harder than people assume. When you, particularly when you get into regulation and complexity, right? So, you know, over the years, Qantas, Woolworths, you know, these guys have all tried to kind of build banks and generally backed off on that. So we thought that, well, we don't exactly know where this is all going to play out, but given that technology is now enabling this stuff, why don't we play in that and use it to our benefit, um, which is we can say to some of these partners, you don't really want to be a bank. You don't really want to have to deal with APRA and ASIC and all this kind of stuff. You want to effectively capitalize on your brand position and your customer relationship. So why don't we do that together? Mm -hmm. and, and we can use technology to make that really quite easy. And hopefully they go, yeah, that's, that's good enough. We'll be, we'll be happy with that position. Um, and, and in fairness, I, I, I always think it's important to say, I never thought I knew exactly what was going to happen with any of this stuff. But you could see something was happening. And wouldn't you rather be in it and seeing what's going on than waking up one day and finding you've completely missed it? And so even with the banking as a service thing, I don't know if it's really going to work. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I know it's going to work technically. Is it going to be a big thing? I don't know. But if it is, wouldn't I rather be in the middle of it? then wake up and go, oh, we should have done that. Yeah. yeah. It makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I guess the it's early days, but that the afterpay deal with Westpac is, I guess, sort of proof that the the other side of that transaction, like the the new fintechs are definitely interested in that model. Yeah. 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 So we would be remiss if we didn't ask you about cryptocurrency. Yeah. You know, as a banking executive uh, between 2014 and 2020, well, actually as an executive before that, and then as the leader of a bank in that time, you would have really seen the rise of the cryptocurrencies. You would have seen the bubble in 2017, the crash afterwards. I'm sure there were plenty of conversations about what cryptocurrency meant for currencies and also for banks. Um, I guess, can you take us into that room, tell us what some of those discussions were? And then now as a private investor, potentially a cryptocurrency investor, we don't know. Uh, how do you think about crypto today? So I first became really interested in it about, 10 years ago, I was at a conference and one of the founders of Coinbase gave a presentation and um, I thought it was really quite intriguing. Um, the way I've tended to think about it, and we ended up investing in Coinbase, um, which which went pretty well, um, <laughs> yes, to, say, to, to say the least. Um, but uh, in my mind, I always separated 
blockchain from the cryptocurrency itself. Uh, to me, blockchain was and is a really important, clever development that I think is going to transform a lot of processes, including in financial services. I think it's it's a really brilliant capability. Um, I've never been totally convinced about cryptocurrency, um, and I and I remain a little skeptical. So I think there's something in it. And I think that um, the use of digital currencies um, will have a role. My view was always, um, I suppose, given the, what I do for, as a career, is, is that the regulators are going to win. Yeah. Um, so I never really bought into this notion that currencies were going to move completely out of government control and that the whole system, all this fragmentation was going to happen. Um, I never really bought that because um, I think governments are pretty powerful in the end. <laughs> um, and so what I liked about Coinbase was Coinbase essentially said, we agree, and that, that crypto is going to be important, but it's going to happen in some sort of a regulated environment. And so Coinbase built their whole uh, offering around the idea that we're going to be regulated, we're going to need to be able to identify people, we're going to need to be able to, to track things. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I took the view that I don't know what's going to happen to the value of, of Bitcoin or these other things. Um, but I know that there's going to be activity going on in this. And this seems like a good way to get exposure to it. What I would observe about it is that a lot of the promise, there's two aspects of the original case that were, were very exciting, but I don't think have totally played out at least yet. So one was this whole whole idea of programmable money, which is particularly the Ethereum um, idea, um, smart contracts, all that kind of stuff. Haven't really seen that happen yet. And it hasn't been for lack of trying. So I'm not saying I'd rule all that out. But I think it's interesting that when you talk to people about these crypto things, they give you a use case and they say it's gonna be great and they give you one use case and then you go great and what's the other use case mm -hmm. and I haven't really seen that happen yet um, the, the other thing I would observe is that the original argument if you go back to it was that crypto was going to allow microtransactions to automate your world I mean I remember the whole idea that cars were gonna pay each other to get out of each other's way you know that was that was one that I, most, I haven't heard that. Yeah, that was the idea was you, the wow. idea was you that your car you were going to have your autonomous car, and you were going to be able to do settings where um, it would have crypto in it, and so as it passed another car, it could offer it money to get out of the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was one of the ideas. That's pretty. Funny. That, that was one of the ideas that was running around. That's now, epic. now here's the thing though. So as everyone's got excited about Bitcoin, what's happened to the price of Bitcoin? It's went. It's gone bananas, yeah. right? And so. It's gone from being a transactional currency, which is, it was called Bitcoin, right? Originally, it was going to be a transactional currency. Now, it's a speculative asset. Yeah. And if you've got the speculative asset, are you going to be using that to buy a, buy a burger? No. No. Yeah. So, doesn't that kind of undermine the whole argument as to why it existed at all? So, now you've just got this speculative asset, which has no backing other than the fact that everyone believes in it. Yeah. And and I know that the argument becomes, well, yes, but 
you know, the U.S. dollar isn't backed by gold and so forth. Yeah, the yeah. problem with that argument is, yeah, but the U.S. dollar is backed by the U.S. government, which has a military and the ability mm. to tax. Yeah. Well, I guess I guess <laughs> right. the analogy is more gold. Like gold is yeah. just a group consensus that it's valuable. Yeah, except gold has actual use. Yeah, yeah, but not, <laughs> not commensurate to its yeah. market cap. Well, people still going to want gold jewelry. <laughs> true, true. It's, uh, so, so, so your answer is, I don't own any Bitcoin. Yeah. Now, if I had a huge portfolio, which I don't, um, would I buy a bit of Bitcoin? Yeah, probably, because um, who knows? Mm. Um, but I, I tend to try to focus on things I can understand and that make sense to me. And to me, as a student of financial history, you know, it's a speculative asset. It's it's digital tulips, man. Yeah, well, you know. So, I mean, now I know that there's people who will very smart people who will tell you why I'm wrong, and I'm willing to admit that maybe I am wrong, but I still don't totally get it. I mean, to me, the 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 legitimate uses of it are ba or not even legitimate. The actual uses of it are okay. If you live in a country that doesn't have a solid central bank and your currency is hopeless, you're in Bolivia or something, and you you want to buy something, then I can understand why you'd want that. Terrific. Mm. The other use seems to be for crime. Mm. Um, well, you know, is that really what I want to be investing in? No, no, no. So I, I get it. Um, anyway, that's, yeah. I don't know. 50 <laughs> minutes ago, Elon Musk tweeted that Tesla is no longer going to be accepting Bitcoin because of its fossil fuel uh, oh, use and it's tanked 12%. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Elon Musk can move he, markets. He just moves markets. <laughs> it's like, can this guy get off Twitter? <laughs> Yeah, maybe 12 we should start so how, right how are your Dogecoin holdings going? <laughs> yeah, I'm not on Dogecoin. <laughs> but anyway, let's move on. So when we talk about uh, disruption and I guess innovation in the, the finance space, in Australia, it's hard to go past buy now, pay later. I think uh, most the most discussed stock in the Equimates community for the last few years has been Afterpay. And this year it's been Zip. Um, so I've got to ask you a question about that. Um so I guess generally, how do you think about uh, buy now, pay later, like, and how do you think it will affect banking? And then specifically, I always have this question and I want to take the opportunity to ask you, in terms of pricing credit, we have credit cards that charge 20% interest and we have buy now, pay later that charge retailers like 3% and, not, and don't charge interest except late fees. It feels like the pricing of credit has taken a massive step down. Like, were credit cards just incredibly expensive or a buy now pay later undercharging based on credit risk like what's the how is there such a gap there um okay well there's a lot in there. Yeah, there's a lot <laughs> um, so so the way i think about buy now pay later generally is um rather than seeing it as this massive disruption to me it is a natural re-engineering of an old process using technology. I, I think of it as all they've done is re-engineer the Harvey, Nor Harvey Norman credit card. Yeah. yeah. Right? You know, in the old yeah. days, you went into a Harvey Norman shop, you went to buy a fax machine, if you remember what that was, and, <laughs> and, uh, and, and you'd fill out a form and someone would go away and fax it around. You'd go around and look at televisions for 20 minutes and they'd come back and say, congratulations, you've got this thing. And in a, in a modern digital world, there's a much better way to do that. Plus, you can do that instantly and you can do it online when you're shopping online. So I just think congratulations to them for looking at this aspect of financial services and saying, hey, we can do this a lot better and we can build a brand around that. And I think they've done a terrific job. Now, is the stock, are their stocks overvalued, undervalued? Who knows? Um, I think they're, it's really a question of, do you believe the assumptions? I think if they can grow into the US market, then 
they can do incredibly well because the U.S. market's enormous. So you just have to, and I don't think there's been much in the way of that proposition in the U.S. So um, on the flip side, though, in the U.S., you have much more penetration of credit cards, many of which have lower interest rates. And so does the relative offer to a consumer in the U.S. look attractive? I don't know. Um, but I do think inherently this huge upside for them, whether that's already priced in or not, I, I would, wouldn't have a view. I think the second thing I would say is that, and I, I feel slightly differently about Zip and Afterpay. Um, I mean, let's, in my mind, they are credit, both of them. Um, and Zip is upfront about that. And we, at, when I was at Westpac, we invested in Zip and did very well out of that. And part of, um, well, I think we owned 18% of Zip at one point. Oh, wow. Jeez, yeah. Between Zip Westpac, and Coinbase, you guys did well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those were the two cases where I actually overruled my CRO to do them, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah, All right. That's another story. But, um, but they did really well. And what I liked about Zip particularly was that they were saying, yeah, we're doing credit and we don't offer the product unless someone passes a credit test. Afterpay takes a different view. But I think eventually the regulators will require them to, to look at it that way. In terms of the credit card versus buy now, pay later. So credit cards benefit from ubiquity. So you can go anywhere in the world and you can use your credit card. If you have a Visa MasterCard, you can use it anywhere in the world. And a lot of what the appeal is, is really the convenience and the ubiquity of that. And I think the buy now, pay later guys are going to have uh, a long way to go to come anywhere near matching the ubiquity for daily transactions. Because buy now, pay later, by definition, really is about financing a, a relatively large, the, the, the proposition is to finance a compelling a larger purchase. And it's compelling when, when you're buying something for $500 or $1,000 or $10,000. When you're buying your coffee, um, when you already have behind the scenes, so the merchant fee is not really equivalent to the interest rate on the credit card. Because what's really going on there is the merchants are paying a merchant fee for a credit card acceptance versus, yeah. right? So I bought my coffee around the corner. I used my my credit card embedded on my phone and um, that merchant will have paid 20 cents or something 10 cents to mm. their merchant acquirer and visa mastercard to process that transaction for them they'd be saying well if i want to why would i accept why would i pay three percent yeah for that for a daily transaction so i think you i could go on about this but but i think they're not really equivalent because the, that fee, the merchant isn't paying 2 or 3% for a coffee. A coffee. Yeah. They're mm -hmm. paying $0.05 cents, yeah. um, or $0.10 cents or whatever it is. So I think you'll find they, they'll still be there. I think clearly buy now, pay later, uh, and, and this is having an impact. The credit card businesses, the, the short answer to why the rates are so high is because not everybody pays interest. Um, and yet everybody gets 30 days free yeah. financing. So essentially, it's one of those cross subsidies that I was talking yeah, about before. Yeah, yeah. Um, a very, very small percentage of people, and and if they're paying twenty percent on their credit card, they're usually only paying that for a month or two, mm. right? So mm. it's so, not really. So basically, if if everyone let their credit cards run longer, the interest rates would come down. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, in a way, and and you see that in there are credit card products out there that are targeting people who do carry a balance 
on a regular basis, yeah, yeah, yeah. you can get a credit card for nine and a half percent. If you're going to be carrying a balance, that you know the twenty percent, twenty two percent is a convenience offering. It's not designed as a long term financing yeah. offering. Yeah. Now you you joked there that um that people don't do buy now pay later for their coffee, but I actually did come across a startup recently called Payo that does eat now pay later and finances Jeez. food purchases in four installments where's it going to stop <laughs> where do i invest <laughs> don't know how well that one will go but hey we'll see i like so, to say that the rules of financial physics will eventually apply yeah <laughs> now we'd love to talk about people and culture uh but before we do another quick break for our sponsors When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, Brian, when you took over as Westpac CEO in 2014, one of the first things you said to the press was, a big priority for me is that we continue to invest in our people and the quality of our leadership. As we said at the start of this, or maybe it was offline, for many of uh, the experts that we speak to in the investing world, understanding management is an incredibly important aspect for making decisions when it comes to investing in companies, but it's often really hard for retail investors to get that access so we'd love to pick your brains on how you're thinking about people and culture and leadership. Do you have or did you have a leadership uh, philosophy as CEO? Well, I don't have a, a trite statement, but I, <laughs> I think it's it's really important. And I, I do think that um, in my observation, I've worked in a bunch of different banks and, and I saw many, many more of them when I was a management consultant years ago. And I really do believe that that is something that's underappreciated about your ability to execute well your ability to outperform over time is really driven by the quality of your people and the environment you create for those people to do their best work. Mm. So uh, as a leader of a big business, Westpac, when I took over, we had about 40,000 people. One of your biggest levers to sustainable success is really about, am I creating, am I getting the right kind of people in here and creating an environment where they are motivated, engaged, want to go do their best work? Um, so I guess my philosophy is that it's really important, and um, that starts with the CEO um, and and the extent to which they know what they're about, and they're able to draw people who want to be part of, of their team because they feel like they're going to do their best work. They're going to be surrounded by like-minded people who are really driven and to be successful. Um, and so I, I, I guess my philosophy is to start with myself and be really clear on what I'm about, what my values are, what I want to achieve then create a team of people who share that same motivation, albeit you don't want people who are all mini-me's. 
Um, so I think it's really you're creating a team, which means you need different kinds of people who bring different things so that the collective whole compensates for each other, compensates for me um, and getting that right. And and the, one of the most critical things that I look for in people in that team is what's their track record of attracting and developing and and engaging people beneath them. So one of the things I usually judge a leader by who who works for them. Um, so if I if I feel like, gee, this person consistently brings great people to the organization and they're really motivated and making a difference, well, that says a lot about the leader. If the people beneath them are pretty average, that tells you something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I like that. So then if you think about the institution as a whole, um, how do you think about building a culture? And um, I guess especially at in an institution as old as Westpac where there's so many like established norms and uh, culture – how do you think about coming in, leading that organization and, and building the culture that you want to see? There's a lot of different ways to think about this. One of the most powerful insights that I came across was the idea that culture really emerges as a consequence of the way people interact with each other. So, yes, of course, at the top end of the house, and I can talk about all this, that you've got to establish the context of what the organization is about. You've got to be clear on what the values and ex expectations are in terms of behavior. You've got to give people a lot of clarity about what's expected of them. Um, and, and you've got to follow up with that and you've got to reward the right behavior and all that. Sort of, that's all true. But a lot of it comes down to what happens day to day between two people. And so one of the best ways I've seen to improve the culture is to actually work on training people in how to work more effectively with each other. How do you resolve conflict? How do you build trust? And then have you created a structure and clarity of accountability that means people feel they have control over their environment and they can actually get stuff done? Mm -hmm. um, and then when they do need to collaborate, that they've got their, the people they're dealing with are on the same page, um, have the same generosity of spirit, are, are able to be straight with each other and support each other versus... I think some people come in and think, well, it's all about, you know, dog eat dog and let's set up competition internally and let the best man win and all this kind of stuff, which I suppose that works for some people. But to me, that that doesn't work for building a long term healthy culture. Mm. So you've now written a book, The Leadership Star, a Practical Guide to Building Engagement. That is all about uh, building high performing professional teams. So let's start with like the world as it is now. What do you think uh, some businesses and leaders are getting wrong when it comes to this? Well, I think uh, a couple of things, when I reflect on things I've seen, it would be, number one, that people feel like they have to play a certain role as a leader and to not be themselves. And I think that um, people can spot a phony, and I think authenticity is one of the critical components. And so that starts with getting yourself clear on, as I said earlier, what's important to you? What do you stand for? What do you want to achieve? Um, and, and being really genuine about that. Tend, if it's inspirational enough for other people, then they want to join you. They want to be part of it. Um, so whereas some people think, you know, I have to be this super decisive alpha male or alpha female. Um, and, I, and, and, and I think people see through that. So that'd be one thing. I think the second thing is people make a bunch of assumptions that other people know what's expected of them. Um, I use the analogy that if you hire a product manager out of Uber and you say, great, you've been a product manager at Uber. Now you're a product manager in home loans at Westpac, and you don't actually explain what you think that role is, the chances are the person's not going to do very well. So a lot of managers 
don't take the time to be really explicit about their expectations for roles, for what good looks like, for what great looks like, for what behavior is okay and what behavior is not okay. Um, so I think it's that making explicit your assumptions uh, would be another one. And then I think um, the third thing that people do, and it's it's I start with this actually in my book, and that the first thing is really about do you care for people as individual human beings versus some generic I care about my people thing. Yeah. Um, and treating each person as an individual because people have choices. And I, I suppose going back to the question about philosophy, my philosophy is that we are incredibly blessed to live in a country where there's low unemployment, the lifestyle is good, and people have choices. And so if you, and by the way, talent is somewhat limited. So if you don't take time to make people feel like it is worthy of my time to be here and I'm feeling fulfilled and challenged and rewarded, then they'll go somewhere else. And, and that is really all about, in my mind, treating people as an individual rather than just assuming that all people are the same and motivated by the same things. So, Brian, we've we've taken a lot of your time today and we, we want to really say thank you for giving us your time. Um, we've got one final question, um, but before we ask that, if people want to read your book, I assume it's available at all good bookstores. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> They can go to theleadershipstar.com um, where it talks about the book. Um, and my, my one quick plug would be, I've tried to write this as the book I wish I had had 20 years ago when I was starting out as a leader. Mm. Um, I don't have an MBA. Um, I was very fortunate someone gave me this job running a thousand person business. Um, and really, I had no business doing that because I, I didn't know what I was doing. And I paid attention over the years to the people that were good at it and I got better at it. And, mm. and uh, I had the time last year to sit down and try to do this as a way to make a contribution to future leaders because leadership I think is really important. Um, good leadership is really important. And so my hope is that people will take this book in that spirit that this is, hey guys, here's a practical guide to what you can personally do when you come in on Monday morning and you've got a bunch of people that you're trying to lead and manage and mm. inspire. Um, here's how I think about it. And a lot of people that I've taught that to have found it really helpful. Yeah, it's my great. Well, Bryce and I are slowly building the team here at Equity Mate. So uh, there's a lot of lessons in there for us. Mm. Yeah. Terrific. So, as I said, Brian, uh, we have a final question. When we have an expert investor on the show, we normally ask them what advice they would give to their younger self when they started out in their investing career. Uh, we got a little bit of a twist on it for you, uh, given that we're talking about leadership. Uh, when you started your career, uh, uh, what, what are some of the leadership lessons you wish you knew back then? The first one, which it took me about 15 years to learn, was that it was so important to separate how you felt about yourself from how you felt about your career success. So when you're young and ambitious and driven, which I was, um, you inevitably start to assess yourself based on how well did I do in school? What grades did I get? Then it's what job did I get? How much am I getting paid? Did I get promoted? What was my bonus? You know, you start to measure yourself and if that's going well, you think, hey, I'm fantastic. And when that's not going well, you think, hey, I'm terrible. And I learned because something went very wrong in my career at one point, and I was miserable. And someone pointed out to me that you're miserable because you thought when it was all going so well, you were great. And now that something's gone not well, you think you're terrible. And in fact, neither of those is true. And you have to separate how you feel about yourself from that. That was to me, if there's one lesson I learned, that was so powerful because it took an immense amount of stress 
out of my life. And it made me able to be objective in whatever situation I came to. And the more senior you get, the more you face messy situations where you need to be objective and not worry about what it means for you. And so I was able to go, well, okay, if, if I'm working hard, if I am behaving in ways that are consistent with the values that I think are important to me, if I'm treating people well, and I'm not ashamed of the decisions I've made or the way I've behaved, then I'm okay. And I recognize that there's a lot of randomness in life and all I can do is all I can do and it'll be what it'll be. And so, you know, did I work hard? Am I happy about the way I did it, et cetera? Then I'm okay. And then if it works out, great. If it doesn't work out, okay, what do we learn from that? And, and the, the subtlety of that is it's just as important not to get carried away with yourself when things are going well. In fact, it's more important than to worry talking yourself up when it's not going well. Because I found that by not allowing myself to get carried away with how brilliant I was when things were going well, meant that when things were going poorly, I was like, yeah, okay, well, you know, swings and roundabouts, baby. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, um, and uh, honestly, that changed my life because it, it meant that I wasn't on this incredible emotional roller coaster all the time about things I couldn't control. So that, you know, you asked for several, but I'll give you that one. That's no, great. that's a yeah. great one to finish with. So, Brian, looking forward to reading The Leadership Star. Um, sounds like there's going to be plenty of uh, valuable lessons in there and very much appreciate you spending the time to come on today. It's been, uh, yeah, a very enjoyable conversation and I know a lot of our audience would take some value from Terrific. it. So thank Hope you. So. Thanks. Thanks. Equity Mates Investing Podcast is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media and the hosts of Equitymates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.